Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, let's open it up to the book of James. We're starting our new fall series in the book of James. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1 is page uh, 1011 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to follow along there, page 1011. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to keep that as well. We have plenty of those, um, so you can take that. Um, Don't take it if you do have a Bible at home, though, so. Um, James is a great book. We're calling the series Faith Works as we look at the dynamic of genuine grace working uh, in the faith of believers. It's going to manifest itself in energy and life and work. It's going to look like something. If the grace of God has transformed you, if you're trusting in Jesus, uh, it's not going to just be words, but it's going to look like something in your life. And so James is a, a challenge to all of us. Uh, It's a very bold book. It's a very in-your-face book. It's kind of one of those love it or hate it kind of books, so hopefully we'll all learn to love it by the end of it. Um, I think we all hate hypocrisy. We all hate people that talk one thing but live out another, and James is going to challenge us a lot in that area. So faith works. Faith looks like something. Faith is living. Faith is dynamic. That's what James is going to challenge us with again and again this fall. So we're just going to read chapter 1, verse 1 to get us started. Um, And I'm going to make some introductory comments really about what's right there. There's a lot packed into just the first verse. Uh, And then week after week, we'll just march through the text. So James 1 verse 1 says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So how are we going to preach that? Let me pray for us and uh, try to explain every letter in that first verse. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We receive it as a gift. We thank you that you give it to us, that you haven't left us without communication, without words from yourself. Uh, So we thank you, and we pray that you would help us. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to respond and to obey. God, we thank you that you love us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the artwork, we kind of went with a mechanical type uh, feel for the artwork to represent the idea of faith looking like something. We wanted to represent the idea of faith uh, in the real world, in the grit and grime of daily life. Um, I was really attracted to this because I have mechanical problems in my life. I'm not real good with fixing things. Um, I think I'm probably, as men go, average to below average, and it seems like there's just always something breaking in my house that needs average to above average attention. So um, like recently, we had a sink, and uh, actually we've had this sink for like six or seven years. I don't know if you've ever done this. You buy something because it looks really cool. Have you all ever done that before? But it's not really a good brand, and it just breaks again and again and again. So we've got this kitchen sink faucet. Uh, And it looks really beautiful. I mean, if you come into our kitchen, you'll be like, hey, that's a nice faucet. Um, But about every year, the innards, the insides break. The little plastic cartridges and pieces crack. The seals get bad. And we're always having to replace the O-rings and the cartridges and the inside pieces. And this happened about three times. And the company just sends you the parts for free. I think they just know it's a piece of junk. And they just send you free parts. Call call them up. Yep, sure, we'll send you some more. Um, And... But the last couple times I fixed it, I felt like then it would break again real soon, and like I just wasn't doing it right. And so the last time it got bad and started dripping, I just kind of put it off. Have you ever done that? Something you know you need to fix, 
but you just put it off because you're afraid it won't work when you put in the effort. Those of you that are really good at fixing things, you don't know what it's like. But for those of us that struggle, it's like, I want to fix it, but I know I'm going to spend three hours and then it's still not going to work. And so finally, after a year of uh, testing my wife's patience with water dripping all over the counter and everything, for about a year this time, I was like, okay, I can do it. I talked to a friend that was a plumber. He was going to come help me, but I was like, oh, I can't find a good time to you know, meet up with them, and I can do this. I'm a man. I can do this, right? So I got the parts. I put it together, and guess what? It worked. It actually worked. It actually worked. And I use that illustration to tell you that if you have faith, everything in your life will work. And that's what, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, that is not the point of the illustration. No, I actually use the illustration to show and to demonstrate most of the time when I fix things, it doesn't work. I worked on a transmission for three months. I was told it was something that someone like me could do. It was just some gaskets, some bolts. I, I replaced it. I refilled it with fluid. It didn't work. Um, I worked on my lawnmower. It, it didn't work. I retiled my bathroom. This guy showed me this fiberglass stuff where I could patch the wallboard. It didn't work. Most of the time... When I work on things, it doesn't always work. And so I don't want you to get the idea that James is saying, if you have enough faith, everything in your life will work. What James is saying is, if you have faith, you will work on it. You will work. You will spend your energy. The Greek word work is literally energy. You're going to work. There's going to be dynamic life happening. You're going to move forward. You will grow. Will you be perfect? No, you're not going to be perfect. But will you grow? Yes, you are going to grow. If something's broken in your life, are you going to ignore it? No, you're going to work on it. Does that mean you're going to fix it perfectly and you're going to be sin-free then? No, we still sin. We still struggle, but we're going to work. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to take another step. We might fall down. We might break worse than we were the day before, but we're going to get up and we're going to follow Jesus. So James is going to challenge us that if we have a real faith, if we have a real trust in Jesus, we're going to keep following him. We're going to keep working at it, not because we're guaranteed perfection, not because we're guaranteed that the sink won't drip anymore, but because we trust him and he's worth it. The first thing that I want us to point out as we look at just, again, the first sentence of this book is the conversion of James. Let's look at the conversion of James. Um, In verse 1, it tells us that this letter is from James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's told us his name is James, and he's a servant of Jesus. By the way, I don't know, I'm kind of a word geek, and so this is a little extra thing that's not that important to understand, but um, did y'all know that the word, that the name James comes from the name Jacob? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. There's a connection there. That doesn't make sense, right? So I just wanted to trace that for you, because when I look at my Greek New Testament, it says uh, Jacob, but we say James. So so why is it? Well, um, Jacob in Hebrew got turned into Jacobos in Greek, then it became Jacobus in Latin, then it became Yemus in French, then James in English. So see how that makes sense with five languages? That's how in English we have James, and it originally was Jacob um, or Jacob. So, so anyway, that's, that's just an aside, but that, that always drove me crazy, and I never understood it, so I, I kind of traced that out. But James was the brother of Jesus, right? James was the brother of Jesus. There were th- Three apostles named James, two of the original 12, and then James, the brother of Jesus. Um, And everybody agrees that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Um, Some traditions claim that Jesus didn't have siblings and that Mary was always a virgin 
Um, I'm not completely sure why uh, the historic church had, had moved into that position, but I believe, as I've looked at early documents, that part of it was their superstition that sex was sinful um, and that it would have been sinful for Mary to have then had normal relationships with her husband and had children after uh, Jesus was born as a, a virgin birth. So we would affirm Jesus was born from a virgin, and then we would say then he had brothers and sisters. He had a lot of biological half-brothers and half-sisters. Matthew 13, 54 through 56, says that this way he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So there are attributions in the Gospels that he had brothers and sisters, and that was just kind of a normal part of his life. Um, James was one of those brothers. Uh, As you can imagine, it might have been hard for you to believe that your brother was the Savior of the world and was God himself. Do you think that would be kind of hard hard to follow? We don't get a lot of details about how that looked, right? We know Jesus was sinless, um, but I'm sure even if my brother was sinless because of my own sin, I still would have probably not always liked him. You know, I mean, just that's just the way family dynamics work. Um, There's a couple interesting references about uh, his brothers. Mark 3.21 says, When his own people hear of this, uh, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Um, So this is what his brothers thought of him in Mark chapter 3. He has lost his senses as he began his public ministry. And then John 7.5 says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. So how did James go from being a brother who thought Jesus had lost his mind, a brother that didn't believe in Jesus, how was he converted to one who would say, I'm not even worthy to say I'm his brother, I'm just a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a dramatic change, right? Imagine what it would take for you to go from calling yourself your brother's brother to saying, I am his servant. He is my Lord. I mean, that, that's crazy right? Something dramatic happened. James then became a pillar in the Jerusalem church. He became a great leader in the early Jerusalem church. Acts 15 shows him kind of acting as an arbitrator between the Jewish factions and the early uh, Greek factions of the church. So we see him become this great leader, this apostle, this foundation, this pillar in the church, but before he didn't even believe in Jesus. He didn't follow Jesus. What changed the mind of James? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through, te- uh, 1 through 7 lists uh, witnesses to the resurrection. And it singles out James and makes it very clear that Jesus and his resurrection appeared to James. The Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ, appeared to James. That's what changed James. That's what converted James, is Jesus himself. And that's the same way it works for us. It's not ultimately about a list of arguments. It's not ultimately about a lot of facts and a lot of details. It's about being confronted by Jesus himself. Our, our prayer is that every week as we worship Jesus and as we pray to Jesus and as we talk about what Jesus' word says, that you, in the same way as James, will be confronted with the living Lord. That you'll go from just thinking he was just a dude from Galilee He's the Lord. He's the Lord, and I am his servant. That's the turnaround that 
that James had. I had a picture here of a car doing a U-turn in the street. We've been test driving a car that has rear-wheel drive. Did you know that rear-wheel drive cars turn better? Again, those of you that are mechanically inclined probably know this. I never knew that before, but when you drive a rear-wheel car, it can turn around much easier. And that started me thinking about how, you know what, it's, it's hard for humans to turn around. We're more like front-wheel drive. We, we don't turn around that easy. It takes a lot for us to turn around. And so what I'd like to ask you as you think about your own conversion, first of all, have you converted to seeing Jesus as Lord? Are you continuing to convert? Are you changed and also changing? Are you converted? Are you continuing to convert? Are you continuing to follow him? Are you continuing to see him as your Lord and as your king and as the sovereign over your life who directs you and who guides you? Do you see him in that way? Or do you still, still see him just as some, some other guy? Just some guy that had a bunch of followers? Just some guy that maybe had some clever sayings? Or do you recognize that he is Lord, this Lord who conquered sin and death, who rose from the dead? I would challenge you to think about it from this other perspective as well. We're all serving a Lord. We're all serving a Lord. So my question for you then is, who is the Lord that you're serving? Most of us aren't transparent enough to say it out loud. But if I were to look at your checkbook, I would know who your Lord is. Or if I would look at your calendar, I would know who your Lord is. Or if I would, if I would find you in your most anxious moments or your most angry moments, then I would know who your Lord is. So my question for you is, as you think about it through that filter, who is your Lord? And I would challenge you to convert, like James did, to stop serving these other lords, but to serve Jesus as the Lord, to become a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing I want us to think about is just the letter of James itself, this concept of him writing a letter. It's a letter at the end of the first sentence. It says, greetings. This is, you know, this is a, like a normal, we, we have kind of how we address things. It's different in email than it would be in a handwritten letter, but there's this idea of him actually writing a letter. I have a picture here of someone writing a letter, because I know probably none of you have ever written a letter before, but that's what it looks like. Sometimes people use a pen and paper and write things down. Um, it's not always done with keyboards and computers. But James wrote a letter. Most, most people would think this was a collection of his best of sermons. Uh, James was a pillar and a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he was teaching uh, orally, and so the apostles are preaching and preaching and preaching, and then they start deciding, you know what, this movement is growing so fast, we need to start documenting uh, what we're preaching to people. We're going to start writing it down, so we've got the, got the gospels developing then, and we've got these letters that the apostles are sending out so that this is a way for them to use technology to send their preaching farther out. And so today we broadcast our sermons and we write books today. Um, the difference would be, of course, that when the apostles wrote their preaching down, they'd been specially commissioned by Jesus and they'd been told the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what to say. So when you write your words down, that's going to be a lot more important than First and Second Clement or a podcast by your local pastor. That's going to be the words of God himself. So Jesus said to his apostles, he said, I'm commissioning you. I'm going to have you write your words down, and those are going to be the foundation. They are basically the New Testament prophets. We see this distinction where the word prophet in the New Testament is used more in a very interpersonal, small way, but the word apostle is used in the thus saith the Lord kind of way that Old Testament prophet was. And so James is one of those apostles writing the words of God. So we have a letter here. We have communication from James, and I believe this 
tells us that God cares about us, that God wants to communicate with us, that he sent his son Jesus who is the living word and he also sends written words, the words of Jesus, the words of the Spirit, the words of the Father to communicate to us who we are, where we've gone wrong, how we need to listen to him, how we need to repent, and then we, we need to trust in what Jesus has done for us. And so my application question for you on, on this point is, do you read his word? Do you recognize that the God of the universe has written letters to you? Think about that. The creator, the Lord of the universe has written a letter to you. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you pay attention? Do you listen to it? I love to listen to Scripture. There's so many tools now where you can listen to it, many free tools. You can pay for stuff as well to get MP3s or CDs or whatever where you can listen to the Scripture. I find that I learn differently when I listen than when I read. Um, So I do a lot of reading as I prepare for sermons. I do a lot of stuff on the computer and with books. But I also like to listen to things a lot. That just helps me learn. So I I challenge you if uh, you're someone who struggles with reading specifically, try listening to Scripture. Another application, a lot of people really grow as they memorize Scripture. When I first became a Christian, I memorized about 60 verses. A man discipled me and challenged me to memorize different verses to kind of cover different parts of my theology and remembering who Jesus was and what he'd done for me. Uh, that specific system was called the Navigator's Topical Memory System. Uh, John Piper's ministry has a, a memory system as well. There's different systems out there where you can kind of memorize different verses, and they become kind of like hooks to hang your Bible knowledge on. I would challenge you to grow in that area, to consider reading the Bible at home, consider listening to it, consider memorizing portions of it, but to really value it. This, this is a letter that God has sent to me. He wants to teach me. Uh, we're one of the, the, the kind of dying breed of churches that believe in this concept called inerrancy. Have you ever heard the word inerrancy before, some of you? Raise your hand. Some of you have heard that. Inerrancy means we actually believe that the scriptures are without error. That means we really value what it has to say. We believe that God has given us his words. And there might be translation disagreements, you know, differences between manuscripts where one manuscript said and and another said, uh, just had just a comma. You know, there are these little minor differences between manuscripts, but we believe that God has preserved his word and it's trustworthy and we know the truth and we really know what he wants to say to us as we read his word. I challenge you to value his word. And if you don't, to ask yourself why. Why? Don't I value it? I'd love to talk to you more about what it means, but ultimately I think it's important to remember that the letter of James, along with all the letters of the Bible, are a sign of God's grace and his love to us. He hasn't just left us on his own, but he's come after us and he communicates with us and he's pursuing you in relationship. The last thing I want us to think about is the audience of James. The audience of James. um, We see this in the words to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You see that in verse 1? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, The NIV says it, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Uh, The word is literally the dispersion, which was a technical term for the people of Israel. When they'd been exiled, they'd been scattered all across the world. So you have this beautiful coming together of these different events where God is going to save the world through the Jews, and he judges and scatters the Jews all over the world. And so there are these little way stations all over the known world where Jews are there studying and proclaiming the word of God. And then God brings many of the Jews back to the promised land. And then we've got the Greek and then the Roman Empire, which establishes kind of a unity all across the known world where there are now highways. There's what's called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, right? They 
established a relative stability. So now you've got these two things coming together where you've got pockets of Jews all over the world, dispersed all over the world, and then you've got Christianity exploding out of Israel and spreading like wildfire across Roman roads through Jewish synagogues. And it's almost like God had orchestrated history for the growth of his church, right? I would would say that's exactly what he did. Jesus came at exactly the right time and exactly the right way, and Christianity just blew up. It grew tremendously. And this, we believe, is one of the earliest letters. And so James, at first blush, is writing to those Jewish Christians that are still spread all over the world. Probably a simplest explanation for his uh, addressing it to these people would be he's in Jerusalem, and he's wanting to spread his preaching and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, out to others who aren't there, right? So the dispersion at a very technical level just means the people that aren't there, they're dispersed, they're spread out across all the nations. When you read First Peter and you read the letters of Paul and you read the rest of the New Testament, you see kind of woven together this understanding that us, um, I guess I would have been like a Druid back then, right? Like whoever we are from whatever nation we come from, we're, we're woven in. The different tribes, the nations, the islands the scripture talks about, we're we're woven into Israel, into the people of God. So theologians wrestle with what all this means. Um, there's one extreme that would just say, we are the new Israel, done. Forget about ethnic Israel today. There's another extreme that's like permanent separation, Israel and Gentiles totally separated. The struggle is the New Testament kind of teaches this middle ground where we are grafted in. When you read Romans 11, you see this picture of a tree. We're grafted into this tree. So if He says the Israelites that don't believe are broken off and the Gentiles and non-Jews that believe are grafted into this tree. And so there's this kind of unity. Um, So I wouldn't go with replacement, but also wouldn't go with permanent separation. Paul talks a lot about how there's this oneness. So in a sense, I would say he's not even just talking to ethnic Jews, but he's talking to you and me. We're grafted into this Jewish tree by faith in Jesus. We're a part of what God is doing in the world through the Jews, through Jesus, the only Jew that was ever everything that God intended them to be. And through union with Christ, through union with the true Israel, with the second Adam, we are now this new humanity, Paul tells us in Ephesians. And so at a very basic level, there's kind of, I think, a couple of meanings here. Basic level, he's just saying, hey, I'm, I'm a guy that preaches to Jews. I'm writing this letter to other Jews that are spread out. But I think also we have to understand that we are a part of what God is doing in them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to us as well. This is a part of scripture that God intends for us to hear and to understand and to obey. And so one of the ways I'd like to think about this from an application point is do you see yourself as a sojourner, as an exile, as a pilgrim? Pick pick your favorite word. All these words are used in the New Testament to describe Christians. These words were also used previously to describe the Hebrews when they were scattered from their land. Do you see yourself as dispersed among the nations waiting to make it to your true home, the new heavens and the new earth? Or are you completely invested in the here and now? Another word that Paul uses in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is he uses the word ambassadors. Do you recognize that you're an ambassador representing heaven here, but this isn't your real home? I have a picture here of tourists walking around. They're holding a map. I don't think you can see the map in their hand. These are people in New York City. Uh, whenever we visit New York City, we have family there, so we've gone quite a bit. And there's this, this feeling you want of you want to kind of look like you fit in, right? And have you ever felt that pressure when you're in a city? You don't want to be the tourist with the map acting lost. 
For one thing, you're afraid you're going to get mugged. But secondly, you just kind of want to look cool, right? Um, I'm afraid that as Christians, it's actually our job to look more like tourists. I mean, we don't want to be obnoxious about it, right? But we always need to remember that we, we don't really fit here. And when it comes to debates about sexuality, like we talked about last week, and debates about other issues in the culture where the culture disagrees with what Jesus tells us in the scriptures, we have to remember that it's ultimately not our job to fit in and look like everybody else. The word holiness, the root of the word holiness is to be set aside. So our job is to be exiles. Now, we've argued that this uh, summer as we've looked at different scriptures, our job is to blend in as much as we can. But don't confuse the, the high priority that scriptures place on blending in and lowering cultural barriers don't confuse that with we must lower every cultural barrier and we, we must never stand out. There's a tension there. We're going to stand out. We're going to be weird. And it's going to vary by culture, right? Some things that Christians hold dear are really valued in other cultures, but there are going to be other problems in that culture. In our culture, some of the things we hold dear might be valued somewhere else, but they're not held uh, valuable here. There's going to be a distinction no matter what culture you go to where some things are embraced and other things are rejected. Our job as exiles, our job as this audience who's been scattered throughout the world, whose true home isn't here, but whose true home is in heaven, is to make sure we're listening to the letter, to the leading, to the word of God. We take our marching orders from him. We're we're ambassadors. We, We don't belong here. We're exiles. Our true hope is in heaven. So my question for you is, do you usually think of yourself that way? Do you see yourself... As an exile, what would it look like for you to live in such a way that you demonstrate that you don't really belong here, but you belong to Jesus? What would it look like to demonstrate that? James is going to have all kinds of practical solutions for us. You know, we like to talk theology, especially those of us like myself. I went to seminary. I love to debate theological ideas, all the different places you can be on the spectrum. And James comes along and he says, just do it. Just live it out. Just live like Jesus. Follow him. What does that look like for you? Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And James says, amen. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. James is going to say week after week, amen, yes. Are you expressing your faith in love? Does it look like something? Are you fully invested in this culture or are you invested in the culture of Jesus? Will you stand out as a follower of Jesus that looks differently, that lives a different sort of life? James is going to say here uh, in the following section, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father who loves us. Don't misunderstand. As we study James, there's going to be a lot of hard words. So you need to remember Jesus loves you as you are. Jesus loves loves you as you are. He proved that by dying for you. But you need to hear the second part of that statement. Jesus loves you so much, he is not going to leave you as you are. Jesus loves you as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. So we're going to be challenged. This is like signing up for a new trainer, okay? James is going to challenge us. He's going to push us. Jesus loves you as you are, but Jesus will not leave you as you are. Faith works. We're going to work hard. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you proved that by sending Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So help us remember there's absolutely nothing we could do, no work we could accomplish that would earn your love. But because you've given us your love in Jesus, we want to work. We want to live out that new life. So we thank you that you took our sins upon yourself. And we thank you that you've given us resurrection life through Christ. God, help us to work. Help us to follow you. Help us to struggle and to strive as we trust that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.